Welcome to The Rebooting Show. I'm Brian Morrissey. This week's episode is what I call a spotlight episode, where I have a discussion of media ecosystem issues with one of the rebooting sponsoring partners. This features Joe Root of Permitive, who is the underwriting sponsor of this mini season of podcasts that featured revenue leaders discussing their challenges. Joe and I last talked in 2022, which in some ways was a different time. Zero interest rate era hadn't fully closed yet, and the market has since felt the brunt of that. We talk about the digital advertising space at an inflection point with the third-party cookie eventually going away. And Permanent's data shows that 70% of users aren't able to be identified through open marketplaces, and that leaves publishers reliant on this channel to make money in a bind. I think in prevailing wins, and the prevailing wins these days in digital advertising are in favor of direct sold whenever possible, and towards privacy, and away from the kind of one-to-one targeting that has been an obsession for the past decade. I hope you enjoy this conversation, and thanks to Joe and Permutive for their support of the rebooting. Joe Root, thank you so much for coming back and doing the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's nice to be back. So last time we talked was 2022. A little bit of a different era, really, because first of all, we were coming out of the pandemic and 2021 was kind of nuts. You know, I mean, I saw it very much on my end. I was like, wow, this is like, I run a lot. And I, I always think about it like when I'm running and the wind is at my back, I'm like, I'm incredibly strong, yeah. very strong. And then when I turn to come back home and the wind is in my face, I'm like, this is so unfair. How am I supposed to run in this? And I kind of feel like the industry overall took a turn, like probably right after really we talked. And I'm hopeful it's coming out a little bit. But I want to like set the stage because you just came back from New Mexico and I've never been to New Mexico, which I don't know, maybe I'll continue. I'm up for any sort of German ad tech conference with giant booths. But first of all, give me the vibe of New Mexico. Because I always like these kind of events to understand the shifts that are going on in the industry. And you can kind of tell with how people are talking about themselves. Yeah. Yeah. It's a great question. So my last to Mexico was back in 2019, walking down the halls. Every message was exactly the same. So like once one personalization was every single kind of booth, every single stand this time around, once one personalization is gone, turns out privacy cookies, they're a new theme. And pretty much every stand was privacy safe advertising and no need for cookies. Also very interesting though, was booths, which used to be absolutely enormous, were now much smaller in size, much more reasonable. It was a more responsible looking ad tech ecosystem than perhaps. See, you could be a reporter, Joe. I mean, that's a perfect lead. Or I don't know if you want to pivot to this. I actually wouldn't recommend it. But like, it's a perfect lead for like a story, like a scene setting story about to Mexico. Like, you know, the booths are smaller. The messaging is. Yeah. So it's definitely a very different vibe. I think perhaps in ad tech industry, which is realized that we all need to be a bit more responsible in this new world, but also kind of a massive shift in where people are focused in terms of positioning. Yeah. So let's just get into the cookie stuff, right? Because I, you know, there's a lot of like, these like apocryphal quotes. And I feel like if they're, British, they're assigned to Winston Churchill. And if they're American, they're assigned to Mark Twain. So like there's one is like, you know, reports of my death were greatly exaggerated. And I almost feel like that applies to the cookie. Like I've been like, I ordered up a piece of art like three years ago that Lara O'Reilly, Lara, if you're listening, I still remember. She told me it was too offensive to use because I had the cookie, a cookie being crucified. I don't know if it was. I'm like, who's getting offended? Cookies or like I won't Christians, obviously? Okay. <laughs> but anyway, that was like three years ago. And 
this thing's still with us. Yeah. What's the deal? It's interesting. I think to your point, kind of greatly over-exaggerated in some ways, under-exaggerated at the same time. So I think kind of what we have seen is that today across kind of inventory for our publishers, about 150 publishers, today across their inventory, 70% of ad impressions don't have a cookie, 30% of ad impressions do have a cookie. In some ways, that's surprising. I think most people look at cookies as everyone in Chrome has a cookie, and that's not true. At the same time, cookies haven't disappeared entirely. So kind of 50% or so consumers are in Chrome today. Of those consumers, 40% of them have manually in some way deactivated the cookie. That could be incognito mode. That could be that they've manually disabled them themselves. That could be that they've installed some sort of anti-trapping technology. But that means kind of only 60% of Chrome users today actually have a cookie, which leaves us with that kind of 30% of consumers today having one. And then kind of, I think everyone is now kind of of the opinion that Google will kill the cookie when it chooses to kill the cookie in its entirety. Whether that is 2024 or not, I don't know. But certainly at Mexico, they had a slide up which was saying it will be gone in, in, in eight. It seems like we will reach the end soon and we can... So wait, the second half of 2024, RIP third-party cookie. That's what they're selecting. So I want to get, jump off that two points. One is just the scene setter like, Explain for those, I mean, most people know, I think you listen to the show, but maybe there's some that don't. Just the accidentally pivotal role, this fairly benign, banal piece of technology ended up playing in a massive digital economy. Yeah. I would love to know the developer who decided to put the third party cookie in whatever the first browser support it was. They've certainly kind of underpinned trillions in spending. Yeah, maybe I could have him on the show when Google finally kills it. Like we could do like a little like funeral and whatnot. I mean I won't tell him about the I will tell him about the crucifixion art. A funeral is much, much more appropriate. So effectively what the third party cookie is enabled is ad tech companies, third party companies to know who you are no matter where you are on the internet. So it means that everyone can talk about a single user with a single ID and effectively kind of information can be very freely harvested. That ends up being very useful for programmatic advertising, it turns out, because you can make a decision on an individual user based on everything they've done on the internet. Now that has allowed enormous centralization within industry. So we've seen kind of a handful of ad tech companies build enormous businesses around this centralization. But in many ways, that centralization has come at the expense of publishers within this ecosystem because all of a sudden they're deeply commoditized. Everyone can get access to um, their impressions and can make their own decisions. Yeah. And like every market, I feel like there's always this pendulum between sending and decentralization. And look, there are advocates there, and then there are advocates on both sides. And the reality is there's trade-offs to each. And what I find interesting about the cookie is that it was never meant to play this role. Mm-hmm. I don't know the gentleman who, or, or the woman who came up with the cookie, but it was not, I know that it was not intended to become the linchpin of a massive programmatic advertising ecosystem. Yeah, not at all. It's a, it's a browser feature to maintain yeah. state. Because the early internet, the early commercial internet, you know, it was a mess. Like, I mean, I, 
a lot of times, you know, we point to a lot of the problems and stuff, and I'm like, well, let's go back in time. I mean, this thing was a mess. We couldn't, there was like something like 380 different like ad standard sizes and stuff like this before the IAB like yeah. standardized everything and stuff. And trying to run ad campaigns was almost impossible because the best part of the internet is that it is an open system. Mm. You can publish on it. And so all the problems that people are complaining about and stuff on the internet, I'm like, well, hold on a second. Like this allowed most of you to just exist. You couldn't in a pre-internet world. So leave that aside. There, there are a lot of like benefits and drawbacks to, to every um, system. But I think what it seems to me what the industry is now undergoing is, and I think it's a pivotal moment is, this was never meant to play the role it's playing. It has a lot of downsides, some upsides, some downsides. And what places it? How does it make it better if we're defining better, not like more revenue and margin for Google necessarily, but a more sustainable, equitable, and resilient media ecosystem? Because that's what I think it comes down to. So is there a hopeful case that what comes next will lead to that joke? Please tell me. I am enormously hopeful for what comes next. So I think kind of the story of the last few years, and perhaps this is a slightly biased European perspective, is that this is less about cookies and more about consumer choice. So one dimension along which I can express my choice as a consumer over whether someone can collect my data, whether they can track me across the internet is, do I or don't I have cookies enabled? Have I bought an Apple device or have I not bought an Apple device? There is another dimension, which is equally as powerful though, which is regulation. And regulation is saying, hey, you can also have a choice over whether companies can process your data at all and what purposes they can process your data for. And it turns out that regulation is massively fragmented and split across hundreds of different geographies and locations. And actually what you end up downstream of that is a world in which consumers have a lot of choice over their privacy preferences and settings. And you end up with a very fragmented world of different privacy configurations on almost a consumer by consumer basis. So I think when you look at it from the consumer perspective, actually it's a very equitable world. It's a world in which I now start to have control over where my data can go, who can use it, everything else. So I think kind of on that point, is it responsible? Is it a good direction? Yes, I think that certainly is from a consumer perspective. If you look at it from a publisher perspective, it requires change. All of a sudden, what was working no longer works. So as a publisher, I was getting ad tech companies to monetize for me. Now they can only monetize users who have cookies, and that's 30% of my consumers. So all of a sudden, my revenue is in free fall from open marketplace programmatic. At the same time, it's allowing publishers to actually take control of their revenue and build a solution for the 70%, which isn't them giving it away. It's them going out saying, hey, actually, advertisers, this is a problem for you too. If you want to solve it, you need to come and work with me directly. And I think for publishers, it's giving them control again where they didn't have control previously. So it has the potential. Okay, so then it has the potential. That's a keyword. And I'm still going to stay in optimism mode. But let me just go back to focus foundational uh, with that is that 70% figure. Because you guys are partners of mine. And this is a great sign that, you know, the ads are working. Because I got someone who sent me back a message saying, I need a citation on that 70% figure. And I was like, oh, I like went back to Robert and stuff. But like, 
And tell me, first of all, that the basis of, of that, I know this is your, your customers and I think, you know, you know, the rebooting show is global, but like, there's a lot of like Americans also who listen to this. Is this like, what's the sample and is this a very European and what's European versus US? Not that the US is like the whole world, yeah. but you know how Americans I are. I do know how Americans are. So the sample's about kind of 150 or so opponents publishers. Our focus is really the top 500 publishers in the world. Um, so about kind of 30% of, of the top 500, anyone from like News Corp or Washington Post through to Hearst or Condé Nast. Um, within that split, about 60% of our traffic is US traffic and US publishers. So it's more biased towards the US. It's not entirely the US, but it's more biased towards the US. And actually we see almost identical numbers for addressability in the US as we do in Europe today. Okay, so it is not a Euro thing. No. no. Yes, so to put it very bluntly. Europe has another layer of challenge, which the US is yet to face, which is, turns out users can just say, hey, I don't want my data to be processed at all. Because ad tech is basically a load of US companies are throwing their hands up in the air and saying, well, if we can't process your data, you're not worth any kind of ad dollar to us. So actually in Europe, you have kind of 50% of consumers, up to 50% of consumers who just aren't even getting served an ad today because... They don't want the data processed by ad tech companies. Yeah. Yeah. So like on that, because I do think it's funny because when GDPR came into effect, I was really happy because we were different at, when I was at Digiday. Like we had like a team that was in, in London and they were like, this is a big deal and stuff like this. I'm like, yeah, another regulation. Okay, whatever. And like, I think a lot of American companies, honestly, you know, didn't understand that, that this was going to set the pace for... You know, they're used to regulations like around, you know, automobiles and stuff like this mm. happening in California and being de facto standards across, you know, the entire country. I think just from an American perspective, you know, we don't think about like the rest of the world dictating how things happen in America. And it really did, you know, and I think we went through this period. I, I don't know if you remember like when like Tribune or maybe it was Trunk then, I have no idea, you know, stopped letting your like people from like, Europe like access yeah. like the Chicago Tribune like they would, but you know that that wasn't obviously extensible because you need to act in. We're all in like global markets at this point, and I think you know Europe was way ahead of the United States by taking privacy seriously. And I I do another podcast called People vs Algorithms. Troy Young, former Hearst executive, keeps railing against GDPR. He goes nonstop. I mean, of all the hobby horses to have. <laughs> These cookie banners, <laughs> I, he just can't take them. They're annoying. They are annoying, but I think, you know, one of the things, I don't want to get too down this rabbit hole, but give me the case for this being worth the cost of, because it's like, it's a UX atrocity. I've never seen any data. I don't know if there's data to, to show that people are more informed or less informed mm -hmm. because of this. And because there's a trade-off, there's obviously a trade-off with these consent situation and like... Is this, what is the consumer benefit here? Yeah. So, yeah, the two things we love to do in Europe, we love to strike and we love to regulate. And the regulation piece seems to be getting some global traction. We're, well, we're getting both actually. So I'm we're becoming way it. more European. We're like, we're getting super regulated and we've got strikes going on nonstop. We got an auto worker strike that's happening right now. That's very true.
reporters at Business Insider down the street walking picket lines in Zuccotti Park. They weren't exactly warming their hands over an open fire. But... So when you look at what the regulations sought to do, it's like, hey, you can have pretty granular control over how your data can be used and processed. So you can determine what uses your data is actually going to be applied to. That turns out is actually a very complicated and complex thing in digital advertising. And the first kind of version of UX within it was just hugely complicated. It was, hey, there are hundreds of vendors and do you want to be able to use their data? Do you want them to be able to use your data to serve you ads? And in many ways, the UX obscured what was going on with the GDPR. So what we saw in kind of this first version was most users would just hit approval because it was such a pain to say, hey, I don't want these ad tech companies to use my data for digital advertising. In parts of Europe, regulators started to dig into this and the regulators started to feel like, to your point, hey, actually consumers aren't making an informed decision here. They're kind of being led into a choice by dark UX patterns. So, and the industry has, you know, they ha- the industry has its flaws, but this is an area that they're pretty dialed in on. Yeah. So some regulators in Europe started to say, hey, users aren't making informed decisions here. You need to give them two options when they arrive on a web page, either approval or rejectal. And that change in UX has a huge impact over how many consumers say yes or no. So for most of our publishers, less than 10% of users were going through all the different kind of boxes to say, hey, I don't want anyone to process and track my data. Given a simple binary option, 50% of consumers roughly are saying, hey, I don't want my data to be used. And that's a huge shift. It's also important to note, though, that's a shift for publishers, but also Google have put the same thing on the homepage of YouTube. So all of a sudden, consumers have this very binary option in front of them. And now given that binary option, consumers are overwhelmingly saying no. Do they understand the repercussions on the ad tech ecosystem after that? No. Should they have to? Probably not. Should we respond and react to the fact that consumers don't want their data to be processed as an industry? Yeah, I I think we should. So this is mostly, I feel like up until this point, this has been a discussion. I just wrote a piece this week about the ecosystem, media ecosystem. I think at first, I always thought that was like a cheesy like term, but then I came around to it. I'm like, it is an ecosystem because ecosystems are fragile. You know, they're right? the healthiest ones mm. are diverse and the healthiest ones are resilient, right? And if you don't tend to ecosystems, they can die. And I feel like there are a lot of, you know, worrying signs in the overall ecosystem. And a lot of it comes down to almost like a tragedy of the commons, right? And when everyone, look, we're in capitalist systems and when everyone's looking out for themselves, a lot of times that can lead to, you know, overall harming the ecosystem. We see this rainforest and lots of different ecosystems out there. I worry the same thing's happening to the media ecosystem in some ways because we have actors who are only looking out for their own mm-hmm. interests. And I get that. People have shareholders and people get bonuses tied to different things. But at the end of the day, if there's no media ecosystem, there's no industry and there's no money to be made. So, And everyone's worse off. So I think it's a, a worthwhile you know, problem, obviously, to address. And I want to know, until this point, this has been a issue that has mostly been one that's fallen to ad tech and publishers. Mm-hmm. But meanwhile, look, we both know it 
it flows from the buy side. The buy side dictates. Like, if it was up to publishers, like, they'd be like, oh, yeah, buy it all direct. Yeah, okay. But, like, we're not going to dictate to our publishers. If our publishers want to buy in a different way, if they want to buy through an ad exchange, let's say, an open programmatic, well, then, look, they've got the money. But I feel like right now this story is shifting where advertisers are waking up to the fact that this is a problem for them, too. Love- Am I right on this? Yeah, it's certainly what we've seen. So I love that analogy of an ecosystem. I think there's actually a lot you could unpack with that one thing, right? Is yeah, just so many small changes within it have massive repercussions downstream. Yeah. Within the advertiser world, we've started to see really kind of brands start to recognize that this is a problem which impacts them now as well. So most brands over the last kind of five, 10 years, have massively shifted the way they spend towards programmatic advertising. So where programmatic advertising used to be for remnant infantry on a publisher's site, now all of a sudden it's the primary way in which ads are bought across most of the media ecosystem today. The problem with programmatic advertising is that today it's only working for 30% of consumers. And what we're starting to see brands wake up to is these precision marketing strategies I've taken these programmatic advertising strategies, which I built all of my media buying on top of, are funneling me into a small and smaller portion of kind of global consumers, today about 30%. And that when I can only reach 30% of consumers in one of my largest marketing channels, that downstream impacts my market share. And we're seeing this, especially with the larger brands who have the modeling in place to really keep track of this, is they're starting to see that downstream this impact from precision marketing it's a loss in market share, and they need to change the way they operate to solve that. Okay, so that would seem to indicate that we will, and look, the pendulum, to me, it's like life's all about pendulum. The pendulum like swings too, and it always swings too far, and then it comes back. And I've seen this pendulum swing too far, in my view, to one marketing. Mm-hmm. I remember when basically programmatic advertising started getting going. I remember talking with Mike Walrath about right, this company, Right Media, he was starting. I was like, wow, this sounds amazing, just like the stock market. And you know, David Verklund was telling me that like dog owners or dog parents, I guess it is, would only see you know dog food ads. They wouldn't see cat food ads and stuff like this. And it went too far. Yeah. And context still matters and different signals still matter. I was walking down the street here in New York City today and I have a university next to me here. And there was a one of those flyers on a light pole that said, I will write your term paper for you. And I'm like, they didn't need one-to-one marketing. No. Like perfect placement. That's what I thought. I wish I'd have perfect that placement. university. Like this is, you don't need to worry about wastage or anything like that. But like, I do think like this should theoretically, right, lead to a shift back to more direct sold inventory. And if you talk to most publishers outside of, you know, some particular cases, they feel like they'll benefit from direct sold. But at the same time, I think, you know, it's squaring the circle, like you can't put the genie back in the bottle Mm -hmm. or even want to is there still needs to be the precision that has maybe not to the degree, the one-to-one precision, but there still needs to be precision. So how do you like square those two things? Yeah. The shift to direct, but still taking the best of programmatic with like, you know, precision in, in the targeting. It's a great question. So I think there are different ways to unpack that. Uh, mm-hmm. The first is, I suppose from a technology perspective, programmatic advertising, as far as we are concerned in terms of kind of one-to-one targeting, 
an ID available on every single ad impression. Programmatic advertising now only exists for 30% of the internet. So if you're a publisher... But is that just now or is that just until we get this like identifier, mess, fingerprinting, whatever it's going to end up becoming? There's like so many candidates. This is like the worst episode of The Bachelor. Great question. Honestly, addressable advertising is only going to decrease in scale over the coming years. So there are kind of two candidates for what is a post-cookie ID. It's either an email address or it is a fingerprint ID. The fingerprinting ID is just getting attacked from every angle by every web browser and kind of every tech company. Google and Apple are just on a mission to destroy fingerprinting and you're in this cat and mouse game. So really kind of it's already pretty low in scale. It would only kind of continue to disappear. I was speaking actually to one publisher who was talking about an ID solution they'd implemented and it was fingerprinting technology when they looked at kind of where the fingerprint actually worked. It worked on the 30% of the users who still had a cookie for the remaining. So it's kind of useless. That reminds me from early early ad tech. I remember when behavioral targeting started coming out, like that they that it was basically it was like ad networks were like 50% accurate on gender. It is exactly that all over again. So then the other is the email address. The problem is across the open internet, less than 10% of consumers signing into a publisher with their email address. And when you look at that as well, it's not a consistent picture. I might be logged in on publisher A, but I won't be logged in on publisher B. So really we see addressability moving towards five to 10% over the next kind of two to three years as Google works through their timeline of whatever is happening. So really we're moving to a world where the notion of an ID being available for an ad impression will be very rare. It'll be less than 10% of ad impressions more than likely. That calls into question the whole foundation of programmatic advertising. Do you need these expensive, i.e. kind of taking 50% of your revenue as a publisher type pipes? Do we need pipes which are hugely carbon inefficient? Do we need pipes which effectively are only going to work 10% of the time? And really kind of when you look at the world through that light, programmatic advertising doesn't make sense in that regard. There are a lot of benefits to it. It's a lot easier to execute on. You can make kind of a machine, well, you, you can make automated decisions within that world. But there are ways to do that in a manner which doesn't have to take 50% of the supply chain on route, which doesn't have to be so carbon inefficient. We can rethink what that world looks like. So if you fast forward really now, if an ID is not available, you're making decisions on cohorts, on audiences, you're making decisions on the context of the page. And actually, there's far fewer permutations of what that can look like. Today, there are probably 10 billion cookies in the world or more. That's 10 billion different ways in which each ad impression can can be layered. Uh, all of a sudden, that's going away. Maybe you have 100,000 different cohorts, but you're not making a decision on 10 billion different IDs. You're making a decision on 10,000 different cohorts. And when you do that, you don't need to make a decision on every single ad impression. You can pre-program a lot of this. The work Brian did with Scope 3 on, hey, is it more kind of carbon efficient supply parts go direct to publisher in their ad server or via the, the, the ecosystem? This company showed that, hey, it's far more efficient to go via publisher's ad server. He's arguably the guy who kind of invented programmatic advertising. Yeah. So I think... Yeah. I've been wanting. I've been wanting to. I, I get to talk with Brian. We we traded messages uh, on LinkedIn about this best social network out there. 
But like, because like when he started as everyone, Brian O'Kelly was uh, the founder of AppNexus. He's one of the, I think him, Dr. Barr. There's a few like godfathers of ad tech, the ad tech pantheon, and, and he's in it, I think. But when he started Scope 3, which is like taking a, a carbon approach and saying this this stuff is bad for the planet. I remember when I first started, I was like, seriously? I'm like, there are so many problems and programmatic. I wouldn't start with the carbon. Like, but maybe that's me as like an American. But then, like, you know, the more I talk with people, like, first of all, it is a real problem. But secondly, and the best business models, particularly in ad tech, are these, it's a Trojan horse to clean up a lot of the inefficiencies and what I would consider the quote unquote real problems. I think they're all problems. But yeah. I think it's an interesting approach. So I think. But can you explain, just explain for people who don't know, like, why carbon is actually a part of this discussion? We have very complicated supply parts today. So. An ad impression, when it's about to get served, can go in one of two directions. Either it goes into the publisher ad server, and it's one request and a decision being made effectively once, or it enters the programmatic supply path. The programmatic supply path will fragment out with all the SSPs. Those will then send out to all the DSPs, and then all those DSPs are making a decision. So at each one of those layers, you're increasing by an order of magnitude just the number of requests and the data process being handled. So all of a sudden you can get um, 3x increase in order of magnitude of, of computation going on for a single ad request. And that's 100x less carbon efficient effectively. Um, if you say, hey, data compute and processing and storage equals kind of carbon spend. So effectively that programmatic ecosystem just increases the amount of processing and computation by an order of magnitude. Okay. so. Real, real issue, and it can be addressed. And I think there's a lot of knock-on effects that can address some of the other issues, right? Yeah. So I think like when you take a step back and look at programmatic advertising, it's been great for making it simpler to execute media. It's had three major challenges. The first one is a privacy one, that it just leaks data at enormous scale, and consumers don't like that anymore. The second to the question you asked earlier is, you have a programmatic supply path taking 50, 60% of revenue before it hits a publisher. So now you have an unsustainable media ecosystem and internet. And then the third problem is it's just increasing by a couple of orders of magnitude, the amount of data processing and data handling, which downstream has an impact on the environment. So in all three of those pieces, programmatic doesn't add up or doesn't have the value, which I think kind of it's consuming today. Yeah. So... A lot of this sort of shifts are going to be driven by the buy side, right? So like at the end of the day, like I, you know, there's a lot of, you know, publishers want things to operate in a certain way. But at the end of the day, like I said, you know, the people who are paying, you know, the people who have the money call the shots, right? So what is your sort of perspective, you know, from the buy side point of view of the changes that they will want driven? Because I mean, a lot of things we talk about, and I like to take I take the sort of publisher point of view because I think of, we talk about having a sustainable, equitable, and resilient media ecosystem. I think you have to start with the publisher because I think that is where the problems are the most acute. I think, you know, on the buy side, like there's, I joke about how there are multiple marketer halls of fame and stuff like this. Like it's a different world and stuff, but they've got to like drive the change ultimately, I think, yeah, right? I completely agree. So we see really kind of there are two things which brands are starting to take issue with. And I would describe this as if you just look at kind of a market adoption curve, this is early adopters and innovators. This isn't mass market yet, but 
early adopters and innovators tell you where everything is heading. And there are two things which we see as major challenges. The first is the realization that today, because consumers have such fragmented privacy preferences, brands can only reach 30% of their consumers using programmatic advertising. And they've realized that if they go directly to publishers, they can reach 100% of their consumer base. So that's kind of layer number one, where we're seeing brands start to shift where money goes. And if you look at kind of the numbers behind it, it's, it's, it's pretty interesting. It's like we ran a survey with DigiDay in 2023, publishers said that 13% of, of, of them felt that like the majority of their ad revenue was going to come from direct sold advertising. For 2024, 58% of publishers believe the bulk of their revenue will come from direct sold advertising. eMarketer had a piece where 75% of total programmatic digital display ad spend will be driven by direct sold deals. So I think we're seeing that happen. The second layer within this though is brands are starting to recognize that more and more of their media spend is going on ad tech versus going on media. And they're looking to clean up that supply path, build more direct parts into publishers, and effectively eliminate spend on ad tech so they can spend more on real media downstream. started you know covering this industry you know coming into contact with working media and non-working media i can't even imagine like being in an agency and having your work described as non-working i'd be like oh my god yeah brother it's work but anyway like i understand i think from the buy side i think the question always comes down to they want they want efficacy right they they're addicted to efficiency and i think programmatic really addicted a lot of a lot of the buy side to efficiency. So I think that is the issue. It's like how do you square efficacy and efficiency? Because direct sold is inefficient, right? But it's not as efficient as like, you know, see a cookie, hit a cookie, as was once yeah. like described. That's how it was boiled down to me one time memorably. Yeah. So I think IOs are an inefficient process, right? I'm sending a load of stuff over email, it's a back yeah. and forth, it's slow, but it makes sense where you can execute large media spend. So there will always be a business for publishers with their endemic brands where you're going to have this IO business because it makes sense for both sides. If I negotiate directly with the publisher, I get better access to the audience, the placement, to everything else. There's then what is a cleaner supply part which eliminates kind of ad tech within there allows an advertiser to get closer to the publisher, but I can still use programmatic to execute it. So I'm not having to go backwards and forwards. I can have some optimization in my spend. And I think what we've really seen a massive shift in, especially at an agency level, is this notion of public is rather than saying, hey, I'm going to execute programmatic spend in the open marketplace across 10,000 different publishers. In Instead, what we're starting to see is agencies curate 20, 30, 40 publishers and their audiences into a set of PMPs and deal IDs, which they can then go and execute on. So it's a more direct mm. path. It's negotiated. It's more clearly priced, but it still has a lot of the benefits of programmatic of, I can make some of these decisions myself without having to send an email every time. Yeah. 
So, but do you see agency incentivized to do that? Because I mean, look, they 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 make money off programmatic. They, they I remember when the, the rise of programmatic. Um, no offense, my friends at agencies, they 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 sprung up these these trading desks that I'm like, wait, you're double dipping. Like, how this is? How can you be taking it twice? Like, I don't. This makes no sense. Like on the face of it, and you know that didn't last. But like, you know, just saw these like ama- amazing margins, and it just it wasn't going to last. But you know, look, a lot of the problems to me in the ecosystem come down to misaligned incentives. Mm. And I think a lot of it, honestly, on the publisher side, I think, you know, the UX crisis, I think it's a real crisis, really comes down to the fact that there's no loyalty. And, you know, when people, when you're going to see a person or really just a cookie, you know, once, get while the getting is good. I mean, what's the, what's the downside of like, you know, 14 different autoplay videos? Like, who cares? They're never going to come back anyway. And if they do, they won't even remember you anyway, because there's no loyalty. You got to fix incentives in order to fix you know, problems to me. I mean, so can agencies make as much or more money off of taking this more curated? I mean, it sounds great, but they got to get their they got to get their piece. They do. It's a shift, right? And, and, and I wouldn't dare to kind of comment on agency economic model. Of course you wouldn't. I can do that. It blows my mind just <laughs> how that whole purely me. <laughs> But I mean, with my very crude understanding of the world, agencies historically have had one of their benefits being the negotiation power of, hey, I am going into a publisher and negotiating on behalf of not just one brand, but 100 or 150 or 200 different brands. That's actually really true in this world is I think what we're really going from is long tail to curated premium publishers where there's a depth of engagement of audience of context of all of these pieces and in that world actually the agency has real kind of has real value in that ecosystem they can negotiate prices they can represent brands and i think there's value in that there is then also the execution of that i don't think kind of the notion of a trade desk is going away entirely it's just changing in scope yeah yeah, and I, one of the other things I wanted to get you to talk about, because I mean, we talk about like, you know, at the buy side wanting their dollars not to get eaten up by intermediaries necessarily. And like, listen, the intermediaries, if you enrich data, you're adding value and stuff like this, you should. I think it's just, a, it's not that there's no value there. It's just that what is just like the working versus non-working, what is the appropriate take? Yeah, at the end of the day, that's what it is. And it's hard to to figure out, but I think it's I think broadly there's an agreement that like not enough is getting to the publisher, you know, as the dollar or or pound or euro whatever works its way through the system. Yeah. There used to be this the thing growing up, this how a bill becomes a law cartoon, and I'll send it to you. But there it showed like a bill going through Capitol Hill and I always wanted to do like one a dollar going through the digital media ecosystem, but there would just be like different people coming in and biting at it. It's, Someday I might get get there, but I think you know ultimately the question is you know how we clean that up. Mm. And one of the the things that I think that there's been a spotlight on is this idea of MFAs mm. made for advertising sites, which is kind of a funny term because to me because most publishers are made for advertising, but like and it's a very squishy term because uh, you know because it's like what are you talking about? Like Condé Nast is a lot of their publications are made for advertising. Okay. Like at the end of the day. First of all, explain MFAs for those who don't know what an MFA is and why. And first of all, how we can tell if something is an MFA or just like a site that's like really into monetizable moments. So it's an interest. Try to make that term go happen, by the way, monetizable I like moments. It. This whole <laughs> MFA thing caught me completely by surprise. 
because it was such an obvious issue, yet somehow it's only become an issue now, which is programmatic advertising is exposing you to tens of thousands of different domains and effectively the quality of those domains varies massively and you have a whole tranche of publisher to your point earlier were just built to optimize revenue around programmatic advertising putting as many units on the page as possible very low quality content context all those pieces and i think that's really come to attention over the past few months but ultimately kind of from the way i look at it if i'm a brand choosing to invest I want to invest in publishers who have a depth of relationship with the audience who I'm going for. And I want to make sure that when I'm doing that, I'm doing that in an environment which is high quality. And it should be kind of painfully obvious in many ways, but I think programmatic advertising's ability to mark its own homework has led to this very strange ecosystem and incentives. Yeah. Well, it's the incentives, right? I mean, if you're marking your own homework, you're going to like, there's going to be a lot of right answers there at the end of the day, I think. At least whenever I marked my own homework, I got really good grades. But I think also, I think there's corollaries in other markets, right? Like, so I think a lot about them. It's not perfect, but the music industry, right? And what's going on right now with a lot of, I think the difference with the music industry is that there's oligopolies in the form of labels there and they're able to negotiate in, in much more coherent way than the very fragmented mm. publishing industry. That's why I don't know what's going to happen with with AI and all that stuff, those negotiations, because the fact is they're not negotiating with like four entities. There's, you know, thousands and millions yeah. and that's a real problem with good reason in antitrust here in the US and stuff. But I think like with the music industry, yeah, the similar issue, like with Spotify, like they're negotiating to get the money going to artists, not to these like white noise makers and stuff, because mm. the incentives are there. Like, why create music and like and art and try to develop fans and like and try to build that connection and go on tour and stuff like this when you can just do like an AI generated white noise, the Spotify system, you can, you know, make money off that. Like the incentives have to be fixed. Yeah. To me. It's there there's some corollary there, I, I think. I, I, I completely agree. I think ultimately publishers trade on this currency of trust for their consumer. And in some ways we kind of lost that in part because some developer at some point in time decided that party cookie was a good feature within a web browser. Then programmatic advertising and incentives change. And before you know it, we end up in the world we're in today. And actually publishers haven't been incentivized to build trust. They've been incentivized to build traffic. And that is shifting. And I think that's a good thing. Yeah, no, I, I think it's going to be a hard shift for a lot of publishers because a lot of publishers built up, you know, muscles and systems around traffic, not around trust. And I think that's a great. I'm going to steal that from you, Joe, and I will sometimes cite you as the source of it. And sometimes I'll just kind of act like it's mine. Give me three things that a publisher can do right now to prepare for this world that we've been talking about the last uh, 44 minutes. So, number one piece in my mind is. Direct sold is no longer an opportunity for publishers. It's a requirement. If you don't have a direct sold motion, 70% of your inventory is no longer getting monetized appropriately. And most publishers can't survive that. So across kind of our publisher base back in Q4 last year, open marketplace revenue was down 25% year on year. For our publishers, direct sold, audience driven direct sold was up 37% year on year. And in Q2, it was up 62% year on year. So my number one piece for a publisher in this world is you have to take your revenue into your own control 
and that starts with building direct sold motion and team. There is a generation of publisher who either lost the art because programmatic came along or actually grew up in a world where they didn't need to go and build a direct sold motion. And to me, that is kind of, without a doubt, change number one. Change number two for me is publishers need to invest in their own technology in order to win in this world. So as a publisher now, I need to be able to reach every single one of my consumers and really kind of do that on behalf of brands. In order to do that, I need to use technology which is built for me, not technology which is built for ad tech companies or technology which is built for marketers or whoever it may be. This is a very specific publisher-focused problem. And if I'm a publisher and I'm waking up, I need to think, hey, can I address every single one of my consumers based on their privacy preferences? If not, I need to invest in fixing that. Piece number three, I don't think I have a third recommendation. I think the most do one thing would be invest in direct sold. If it was to do another thing, it would be make sure that I can address 100% okay. of my audience. Okay, awesome. Well, thanks so much. I really appreciate you taking time. This is an awesome conversation. Perfect. Thank you, Brian. Really enjoyed it. Thanks for listening. Thank you to Jay Sparks for producing The Rebooting Show. If you have a podcast that you're considering making, you should check out Pod Help Us and what Jay can do for you. Go to podhelp.us.